Welcome to the Good Mood Podcast. This is episode 31, Sleep Your Way to a Good Mood with Dr. Leah Saunders, ND. I'm Tali Marcajani, a naturopathic doctor. For seven to nine hours every night, we human beings spend our time unconscious. During this time, we can't eat, procreate, or defend against predators. We're not building shelters, we're not innovating, we're completely vulnerable. And yet our bodies and brains evolve to require this unconscious time in order to survive. When we're deprived of sleep, we die. And we're subtly deprived when we're subtly deprived of sleep, an hour here, an hour there, for nights and nights on end, our mental and physical health suffer. Dr. Leah Saunders is a fellow naturopathic doctor with a sleep focus. We talk about the architecture of a good night's sleep, how sleep disturbances can manifest in someone's lifestyle, and how this can affect mood and mental health. Dr. Leah talks about how we can harness lifestyle to repair broken sleep and improve mood, hormones, energy, and stave off disease. Leah is a naturopathic doctor and the owner and founder of Uxbridge, Ontario's premier wellness clinic, True Roots Healthcare. She has a special interest in helping busy women gain energy, balance their mood, regulate hormones, and sleep deep. Her ultimate passion is for women to sleep deeply at night to do what sets their soul on fire during the day. Sleep is so, so important for mental health, and so I really wanted to pick Leah's brain on how she works with sleep to improve the lives of the patients in her practice to provide you with some tips on prioritizing and optimizing sleep so that you can benefit your mental health and emotional wellness. I hope you enjoy this episode. So hi, Leah. Thanks for joining me. You Thanks are so much a, for having me, Talia. Yeah, you're welcome. This is so exciting. So you are a sleep expert. Um, and so, you know, and a naturopathic doctor as well. And why did you get into sleep? Why is sleep one of your main um, clinical interests? Yeah, well, I've always loved to sleep. <laughs> it was always <laughs> a bit of like a joke about how much. I, mean, I remember one year my sister actually gave me like an excited for bed package. And it was full of like nice things, pajamas and eye masks and all that. Um, but it wasn't actually until I had my son, which is a common story for new moms to, that I experienced, um, like, you know, it's going to be part of it, right? Like, you know, you're going to have a baby. They're going to wake up in the night. It's going to disrupt your sleep. Um, but I never really anticipated or appreciated how much of a profound impact it would have on my physical health and my mental health. Mm -hmm. And so I, um, I had my son in June of 2018. And I took three months off from practice. I'm a naturopathic doctor as well. And I came back to work around the same time that he went through like the classic three month, four month sleep regression. And so obviously there's like, I was balancing a ton of stuff. So getting back into work, being a new mom, um, just managing, I'm a clinic owner. So my own practice and the business, all of these things. And somewhere along the line, so th between three to six months postpartum, I was really struggling and I, um, I think it started to become obvious to my friends and my colleagues. And somebody said to me, like, are you okay? You don't really seem like yourself. And we all go through our days being like, Oh, Hey, how are you? Oh, I'm good. How are you? And I was like, Hey, no, I'm cutting it. Um, I'm just going to tell it as it is. And I was like, you know what? I'm not like, I'm actually really struggling. And I actually can't remember the last time I slept for more than an hour and a half. My sleep is broken. I'm so tired. I can't think straight. My mood is awful. I have no energy. I can't manage my patients and my business and adapt to being a new mom and being a wife. And like, there's zero time for me and on and on and on. And 
her response to me while it was like really well intended was, well, other women do it. And she was trying to amp me up and be like, you know, you can do this. Like you can, you're strong and you can get through and push and whatnot. But it really made me appreciate both, both personally and professionally, because then I started reflecting on my patients and the conversations that I so often had and started to realize how many women accept that sleep deprivation is like a thing that just happens because you have kids or because you're stressed out that there's nothing that they can do to control it or improve it. And it's just what you have to do to be more productive in a day. So you have to cut your sleep short, right? Um, All the while not really recognizing maybe how much of a role it's having on physical and mental health. And we can get into that and talk about how sleep impacts every aspect of our health. And if you're not sleeping, it's going to be almost impossible for you to heal any other condition that you're trying to address. Um, but really it was just wanting to take this message to women to say like, you know what, if you're not sleeping, it's not okay. And I really wanted to work towards helping women reclaim that aspect so that they don't feel like they have to cut it short and sacrifice that key element of their health. Mm. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. So it's like you have this direct experience with sleep deprivation and how it affects you. Yeah. Yeah. And then I started reflecting, like I said, with my patients and, I started thinking about all of the patients who were like always struggling to get better, right? They really wanted to feel better. Um, but so many of them were like my sleep. I like, I've never, I've never been a good sleeper. I'm like, like, I just, I don't sleep well. Um, and we would work on it. Like I would maybe prescribe melatonin or like whatever, make sure the room was nice and dark, but not really have in-depth conversations around it and maybe not focus on that. So like, even if somebody is coming in to say, well, like I have anxiety or I have depression or I have IBS and they're also not a good sleeper. Like they always want to focus on the thing that's creating the the most disrupting symptom for them. But sometimes we need to like focus on the upstream effects. And for me now it's so obvious that it's sleep. I'm so passionate about helping people realize that too. Yeah, right. Because it's difficult when you're trying to work with somebody, especially with foundational pieces. And it's like, if I, if you have an extra hour in the day, a lot of patients will will say this, like, oh, I get up an hour early to go work out, um, mm-hmm. you know, or I stay up later so that I can do my self-care stuff, my meditation way, you know, mm-hmm. and, or just have more time in the day because that's when I do my list yeah. or whatever. Um, and yeah, I think I had this pivotal moment maybe a few months ago or years ago in my practice being like, you know what, if you have an extra hour, I think sleep is the thing we should, we should. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I always say it's like the ultimate form of self-care, right. Which is like a word that gets tossed around so much. I, I can completely appreciate that. But I, I think that we just need to look at like, why is it that? Cause what often we hear is like women will say, well, that's a time that I have like alone in my, at the end of the day, my kids are asleep and it's the only time that I have to myself. And like, I think it speaks to a bigger issue that we just need to assess and get, be curious about in ourselves to say like, well, does that mean that you're totally overscheduled, mm-hmm. right? And under supported. And does that mean that like, you really can't find half an hour to an hour at another time in your day to put that effort and energy inward? Mm-hmm. And you're, because otherwise we're all on receptive mode, right? And we're all putting energy out for everybody and everything else. So. Right. And there's no, there's no refilling of the cup. Yeah. Just, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can talk a bit about sleep architecture, like what it's like sure. in a night when someone yeah. goes to sleep and why that's important. And we'll, we'll get yeah. into the whole thing. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So um, basically we have like sleep is 
obviously, um, let's say common across like all living organisms. The only time that another species purposely delays or deprives themselves of sleep is typically when like animals are so stressed out because of a famine, they can't find food. They're staying awake to uh, find and forage food. So like that doesn't happen for us because we've got all the drive-thrus and all the grocery stores that are open 24 seven. Um, but we'll, we'll, we understand that as humans, we all kind of have our own individual chronotype. So that's basically a fancy word for like, are you a, a morning person or are you an early bird or are you a night owl? And so that's a really important thing to recognize and understand because it's partly learned and then partly biological. So it's actually really hard. We see this in teenagers, right? Like parents will be like, why are you so lazy? You want to stay up until one and sleep until 11. Like it's actually because their internal body clock shifts during that time of their lifespan to being such a night owl. They actually need that late morning sleep in. It's a whole other topic. But um, yeah, what we want to is saying like we need our sleep and how you sleep according to the time of day is going to partly depend you can retrain it but it's going to partly depend on your genetic and learned behaviors around sleep mm -hmm. so when we fall asleep at first in the night ideally we're falling asleep quickly that means you're lying down head hitting the pillow falling asleep quickly enough to not consciously have to review and think about like why haven't i fallen asleep yet so if that question is going through your mind it's been too long oh, then we fall asleep and we spend most of our, say, first four hours in what we call non-REM or NREM sleep, which is actually the really deep sleep. And so I find this is where people get a little bit confused because they think REM and, and that rapid eye movement and dream sleep is the deepest stage. It's, it's not. It's actually a lighter stage. We'll cash in on our deepest sleep at the beginning of the night because that's where all of the repair and like really deep benefit that our immune system and nervous system and um, body really gets. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Like we want to make sure we cash in on that protective mechanism before we move into the lighter stages of sleep, which do have a purpose as well. Um, but if that's the only sleep we're going to get, let's say like our body is going to make sure that we do that. And then as we kind of progress into um, say 1am and onwards, we're going to spend much more time in REM sleep, which is that rapid eye movement when you're dreaming. Mm -hmm. And as the night goes on, we'll spend like longer periods. So each sleep, each sleep cycle is 90 minutes. First half of the night, more of that is going to be taken up by that non-REM. And then in the second half of the night, you're going to experience more of that REM. And this is when you're like waking up in the early hours of the morning from a dream, right? It's, it's a little bit obvious when we think about it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, so then we can really take a look at to say like, well, what are we using to maybe think that it's, it's helping us with sleep like alcohol, um, which is a huge REM inhibitor. Mm. Hence why we tend to like fall asleep when we have a glass of wine because it helps us relax and decompress, but then it interrupts our REM sleep so that we have a really restless sleep from 1am onwards. Mm. So we can't get into that deep stage of sleep. I've heard that it can affect sleep nights later as well. Is that true? Is it? Yeah, I don't, it would probably depend on maybe like how much you're consuming and how, um, how frequently, um, how that might, like the context for that might be, is that our body wants to have this balance of non-REM and REM over the full course of the night. And so if you are, say, a chronic alcoholic, let's just take the extreme example, you're basically never going to get REM sleep. And then if we put you on a program and take you off of that and you experience withdrawal, 
your body and brain is going to binge on REM sleep. So you're going to go through hours and hours of having way more REM than otherwise, because your body has been missing that critical element of sleep. And so we'll see this in other, like if we, in rats, right? Like if we purposely deprive rats of REM sleep, like by waking them up when they get into that stage, then the following night they will experience more REM sleep than they would otherwise. Mm, Okay. And then that's at the cost of deep sleep if they're, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Cause so many people will use wine or whatever drink to help. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And alcohol, I think is like a really important one to highlight because um, I hear a lot of things like, well, it helps me relax. It's how I decompress or like, no, it doesn't impact my sleep. And like, it's, it, it does. <laughs> so we know this like from sleep studies, but beyond just inhibiting REM, it also increases our core body temperature and we need our body temperature to drop and stay low over the course of the night to initiate and maintain deep sleep. And it's also a diuretic, right? So we're going to wake up and, and feel like we have to go to the bathroom or go to the bathroom more frequently. And even if you don't consciously wake up and feel like you're awake for a long time, if we actually put you in a sleep lab after consuming alcohol, we do see that you actually have what we call like micro wakes. So it's, you're basically sleeping, but you still are waking up even if you're not conscious of it. Mm-hmm. And that, that might explain a lot of people. Like I know in other podcasts, you mentioned this, who say, I, I fall asleep and I stay asleep and I get eight hours, but I still feel tired. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. So whenever I see that, cause it's interesting, sometimes I'll have patients come and see me and they're like, I'm concerned about my sleep. I fall asleep fine. I say, sleep, I get eight hours. I'm still tired. I'm like, okay, so it's not your sleep. That's the problem. That's when I often look at other systems. So I want to say like, how's your thyroid? What's your iron, your B12, your vitamin D. Like, let's take a look at some of those energy systems. Cause often, especially with low thyroid function, I find that women will just want to sleep all the time and get enough sleep but still be tired. Right. Right. Yeah. Or, or possibly there are these micro sleeps happening that they're not aware. Yeah, of. exactly. But it, it might not always so, be sleep if someone's feeling tired and yeah. So, so yeah. So, so someone will fall asleep, let's say 10 PM the, the next four hours, yes. it's mostly deep sleep. And then in the early morning hours, it's more REM and more yeah. superficial sleep cycles. And I know that you've alluded to this, like we see a couple of, um, issues with sleep that patients will experience like sleep onset, right? Falling asleep and then maintenance, staying asleep, usually in the early morning hours. And what do you see in terms of the difference or what's going on with? Totally. Such a good question. (laughs) So one of the questions I always ask patients is what are you doing the hour or two before bed? And it's such a critical question because it's obvious when we apply this to kids, right? Like you would never expect, I would never expect my two-year-old to sit in front of the iPad or be playing a whole bunch of games or like fully around running around inside and then plop him in his bed and be like, okay, good night. See you later. And walk out the door. We have a whole routine. He knows what happens next. He winds down over the course. And by the end of it, he's ready for bed. And so as adults, we still need that wind down routine because like I said, we're always on receptive mode. We're always getting emails and text messages and doing everything for everyone else. And now that we're most of us are working from home or virtually, there's a bit of a blurred boundary between our work-life balance. Uh, for some, it's stronger. For some, it's, it's harder. And so if you're opening your laptop after you're putting your kids to bed and then do, like answering all your emails, one, you're exposing yourself to that bright blue light. That's primarily from that LED screen. Um, or even if you're just scrolling your phone on Facebook or Instagram, 
your phone and or your devices are like so close to your face, primarily emitting that blue light, which is the same light that's emitted right now. Like it's a bright and beautiful sunny day. If we go outside, that bright sunlight sends a signal to our body and brain to say it's it's awake time. Like the sun is out, melatonin goes down, it's time to be awake and alert. We artificially reinforce that when we have LED light bulbs on all the time in the evening overhead and when we have these de- technology devices in front of us. So I always encourage patients and, and what we know is supported in the research is to say, like, turn down 50% of your lights an hour before bed, disconnect from technology. We're getting that disconnection then from that blue light perspective, but then it also provides that time that we need for introspection. And so then instead of being concerned with like everything that's going on out there, you can actually go through the things like, okay, how do I actually feel about what happened today? What's on my mind? What did I forget to do? What do I have to do tomorrow? All those things. Mm -hmm. Then if you don't make time for it, the bottle neck effect happens and it's going to happen at 2am when you wake up and you can't get back to sleep. Mm-hmm. So your brain's like, okay, now we're going to reflect on the day. Yeah, great I'll... time. There's no distraction. <laughs> and that's when people usually like, that's when anxiety kicks in because then the rumination can totally. start. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just, I like, I would really um, challenge somebody to be curious about that. Like, do you think about the things you think about at night during the day? And can you actually carve out that time to then say like, okay, this is what's bothering me. Like why? And write, write it out or talk it out or whatever, go for a walk or just incorporate it. Cause then, then we're accessing those, those channels that our, our brain is ultimately like going to bring to the surface if we don't address it. Yeah. And, and I don't know about you, but when I'm lying in bed at 2am trying to process a problem, I'm not very good at doing that. Like it's, totally. <laughs> it's like half, yeah. half asleep, you're, yeah. you're like it's just not good and if you can get that out during the day journaling it or walking like mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. probably far more productive it's almost like yeah like scheduling an hour in the day to have your rumination <laughs> yeah totally and then we start associating like our brain is so good at developing and and recognizing patterns right so if we actually make time for that in the day then like that's the time we get to do that mm-hmm. and then at night if we don't provide that time or opportunity or like if we are lying in bed awake and we actually get up and go and read a book like you're then disassociating your bed with a place of being awake mm-hmm. and you're strengthening the connection of bed being a place where you actually sleep yeah that's that's a really good point because I know a lot of people will talk about that a lot of patients have this experience of I, I feel exhausted and as soon as I lie down in, a, in my bed I'm wide awake mm-hmm. that association that was created yeah. And, and where it can sometimes be helpful to kind of examine that too. So we talked about like the 10 PM bedtime, let's say you're getting eight hours. Um, so you're getting up at six, your body is going to reach its maximal state of fatigue, let's say, or your sleep pressure is going to build 14 to 16 hours after you wake up. So let's take the 6am wake up example. That means your ideal bedtime is going to be between eight and 10 PM. And so if you're going to bed at 10 and falling asleep fast and staying asleep and sleeping through till six, then that's great. We've got the cycle down. But what I see a lot of people doing and they'll experience that second wind is like they're up at 5am and they're not going to bed until 11. So they've pushed past 
And like I said at the beginning, the only time that happens in nature otherwise is when animals are foraging for food. So it spikes our cortisol because our body is like, why are you awake? You should be sleeping. There must be something wrong. Where's the threat? Spike the cortisol and the adrenaline. And it's an attempt, it's a protective attempt to help you feel more awake and alert because your body is perceiving a certain threat because you're forcing it to be awake longer than it wants to be. Mm, that's actually, yeah, that's really interesting. It's like, yeah, you push past that window. Yeah. And like, we talk about this, I think in the, as naturopathic doctors, it's like part of the adrenal fatigue picture or whatnot. Um, and it's true. Like it's related to that chronic stress, but I just think when we put it in that perspective, it's like so clear. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Because a lot of people say, you know, 5 PM I'm, I'm ready to go to bed or at least eight. A lot of people say yeah. like eight, I'm ready to sleep. And it's almost seems like a, it's framed as a problem. Mm-hmm. But it's actually very interesting to say, well, maybe that's your bedtime or you need to be sleeping in or totally. yeah. yeah. Like if you're up at five, that means your ideal bedtime is between seven and nine. So eight is perfect. <laughs> and you're, and I know I can hear the people being like, that is totally impractical. But again, it just goes back to say like, well, we are sleeping less over the past 100 years. Like we've cut our sleep by more than I think 25 to 30% on average, like evolution doesn't keep up with that. So if you're shortcutting your sleep and forcing yourself to be awake, like they, they literally use this as a form of torture. Right. Right. And so when we look at people who are experiencing anxiety or depression, or um, it's will be a really interesting conversation, probably like um, PTSD Mm -hmm. and how they're like, their dream and, and sleep is affected. But we know that if you're not getting, at least seven hours of uninterrupted consolidated sleep per night, you're at significantly increased risk for anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. And so what happens when we get less than that seven hours of sleep, we wake up in a physiological state of stress. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter if you are feeling stressed or not physiologically, your body is like, okay, let's pump up the cortisol, pump up the adrenaline because we need some extra fuel to go on today. We didn't get enough sleep. And so if you put that on top of somebody who's already feeling anxious it's not a really great combination. Mm-hmm. And then where we'll see it kind of swing in the other direction, just for, so people have a full picture is like often more so a little bit in depression, we'll see people oversleeping. So we'll see more than nine hours of sleep in a 24 hour period be associated with depression. And that's where we see that like increased fatigue, lack of motivation, right. Mm-hmm. Impacting just your desire to want to be in bed and, or if you're on a medication, that's quite sedating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes it. It's interesting because I I think of things a little bit now in terms of we have our physiology and then we have the environment and our body's trying to um, make sense of the two or combine or you know figure yeah. out what the relationship is between the two. So you have stress affecting sleep or anxiety affecting sleep, but then yeah. the impact of affected sleep feeding yeah. back on the depression anxiety because the body's like, okay, well there's a lot of cortisol that's affecting my sleep. But then not sleeping is also increasing cortisol and the body's looking for a reason why cortisol is high. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then we should just not sleep because we're probably being attacked by something or we're Mm -hmm. in and so a lot of it just goes back to trying to like talk to patients about sort of breaking that cycle somehow in some way to reestablish safety and and teach the body that actually everything's okay. Yeah. Totally. And there's actually a really like the gold standard for treatment for insomnia is actually cognitive behavioral therapy specifically for insomnia. So it's called CBTI. And it's, it's really fascinating to me because it's so, it's so lifestyle based. Like you, you don't necessarily um, 
go through the, the classic CBT of like past trauma and behaviors and thought patterns that are emotional in nature. This is like really specific to your, your sleep. And I think this is where I fell in love with this aspect of sleep medicine as a naturopathic doctor, because it brings together so many elements of this, like mind body connection, like you're saying, um, environmental and lifestyle medicine. So like what we do during the day ultimately impacts how well we sleep at night. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and there's so much good evidence now coming out about sleep and how all of these things that we're talking about, like blue light and screen time and stress and cortisol and hormones and all of that, um, impact sleep and vice versa. And like, this is like, it was just, it was like, Oh, I was like, this is where I'm supposed to be because there's so much information out there that we can provide, I think, like a, a really great service as naturopathic doctors focusing in this area. Yeah, there's so much, there's so many places I, I want to go with this, like, because yeah, circadian rhythms is this huge area of research now that you're, you're, so you're impacting your sleep from the moment you wake up and with your meal choices and like it's totally. all day long. Yeah. Meal choices, caffeine, when you're getting outside, all of those things. Um, that's actually where I think like one aspect of COVID and working from home has maybe helped some people because they've been able to adapt a little bit more to their natural rhythm. And where I'm seeing this in my patients is if they're not commuting, let's say, now, then they're able to actually sleep in a little bit in the morning and they're not quite as tired at the end of the day because their days now, like they do actually have a little bit more time for themselves. So that's one part where aside from the anxiety, right? If like you, you've been experiencing insomnia because of the anxiety of the pandemic, that's a different conversation, but from a lifestyle, lifestyle piece, it has been interesting. And I was listening to another podcast um, with Dr. Matthew Walker, who wrote Why We Sleep. And he was actually saying that like they have looked at sleep tracking data. So there's some really great apps and wearables and things like that you can use to track your sleep. And through the pandemic, what they've reported is that on average, people are going to bed about a half an hour later, but sleeping in an hour later. And when you think about it, like if you are a night owl, that really like modern societal expectations don't support that circadian rhythm because you've got to be at the office by eight or 9 a.m. And depending on your commute, you've got to be up a whole lot earlier than that. Mm -hmm. And now if you're working from home and can like hop out of bed 10 minutes before, right. It's, it's pretty different. You can actually catch up on a bit of sleep. And I think people are also finding like you can work within your peak hours. So some people's peak hours. Totally. So you can kind of, bum around in the morning if yeah continue and then do your productive stuff yeah it's it can yeah setting your own schedule is so important and I know yeah mm-hmm. Matthew Walker advocates for late yes. times and yeah yes yeah because of the teenage I think he even said like teenagers sleep will shift to more night owl even if they're not necessarily night owls as a way to mm-hmm. differentiate from the tribe <laughs> to, like, yeah it's such a cool idea and it makes so much sense because like traditionally if we did um live and gather in tribes it made sense for somebody to be awake all the time to protect and so it was this idea that teenagers would be awake late at night and that's when they like go out and do their thing and gain their independence and, and whatnot right. Yeah. And so now we're like, no, you have to go to bed at nine and wake up at eight or. Yeah. And it's a real problem because when you look at the statistics and he lays these out in his book um, around um, early, like some of the schools that started like six or 7 a.m. And like there's a a correlation with car accidents by teenagers driving that early in the morning 
suicide attempts and and actual like suicide um, events from episodes of sleep deprivation or chronic sleep deprivation. So I think it's it's something that we really need to investigate and and focus on. Yeah, and it, yeah, and I really I want to dive into the mental health implications. Mm-hmm. Before I just want to touch on the sleep maintenance because we talked about yes. that and how you know setting up your 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 schedule, yeah. about some wind down time, like treating yourself like a four year old. You know, <laughs> yeah, I love it. <laughs> like putting yeah. giving yourself a bedtime, putting yourself to bed. <laughs> totally, <laughs> totally. Um, but then your body, like the way I also express this is for me, like the cottage is a place where I go. And when I arrive, I'm like, <sighs> like, it's just an incident. It's an association I have. And so we need to create that with our bedrooms. And when we go through the routine, like we create that wind down where if you're doing it in a low lit environment, you're also like starting to boost your melatonin and giving yourself space for that. Mm. So with the sleep maintenance, like you're wondering kind of like, why does that happen? Yeah. And what, what can people do about it? Yeah. So like the, for the person who can fall asleep easily yeah. and then is up either tossing and turning all night, or usually it's those, the witching hour, the yeah. 1, 4 a.m. Totally. Uh, maybe can't fall back asleep, but is, is aware enough that they're awake that they see the time. Yeah. Yeah. I think part of it is what we touched on already, like mood. So, um, and I think that that plays back in be, mostly because of cortisol. So big picture, like, if you're not eating properly through the day, let's say like you're not getting enough protein, healthy fat, and you're feeling um, like under fueling your body from just like a bird's eye view, then when you go to sleep at night, your body is now entering a fasting state mm. for a lot of people for much more than eight hours, because maybe you haven't eaten since dinner at seven, and then you're not going to have breakfast until later or whatever. So when your blood sugar drops over the course of the night, cortisol is released because cortisol is that hormone that's going to say, okay, blood sugar is dropped. Like let's mobilize our resources and cortisol going up will bring our blood sugar up because again, our brain thinks we're running from that lion, tiger or bear, and it needs fuel to do that. So that cortisol spike at that time in the night is often enough to trigger a wake up for people who are chronically stressed throughout their day, chronically anxious because it's like that little like push on the gas when you're already going around that accelerator. And so then you're waking up and now you're like, I was asleep. What's going on? Cortisol is then at the top and you're cycling into those ruminating thoughts. Mm-hmm. So part of it is like, yes, do the self care and make your, make your time for you and all of that. But also I, I look at like, how are you eating during the day? And are we actually experiencing a blood sugar drop at night? Um, because that's often like that one to 3am time. And the number of people who've been like, Oh my God, thank you for telling me I could have a bedtime snack <laughs> because we have this guilt associated with it. We think like, Oh, if I eat before bed, it's going to make me gain weight. If you've ever tried to go to bed hungry, it's almost impossible. Mm. And this is partly why. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's that rat thing where the, the you know, animals yeah. in nature won't sleep if they're trying to find yeah. food. Yeah. 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 It's interesting also to say, like I'll tell patients this too, like you're not necessarily hungry either. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's uh, basically a physiological response to needing food and nourishment. But by that, by the time you're awake, your cortisol's already regulated your blood sugar, maybe. Yeah. You're not hungry, but you're just awake and stressed. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And I do also think aside from those things, it's like, how are you setting up your sleep environment? So I have a really great checklist that people can access. We'll link them with that, but it's like seven tips, make sure your room is dark, 
cool, like all of those things, they seem really simple. Um, but like I even, I sleep with an earplug and often I'll, I'll hear people say like, Oh, but I need to hear what's going on. Like you will hear it. Right. <laughs> so what I do is I have one earplug. I leave it under my pillow at night and, um, sometimes I'll go to sleep with it in. If I go to sleep before my husband, because I don't want him to wake me up when he comes in. Um, other times if I wake up at night and just like hearing him breathing beside me when I know he's asleep, I'm like, oh, I want to be asleep. So I just put the, the earplug in one side. So my pillow is on the side. Mm. So if I think I hear something, it's just like, I just raise my head and this ear is right. Yeah. Kind of audible. So I find like that, like really simple things like that. Like we're not talking about like buying blackout blinds and renovating your bedroom. It's just really simple things that can make a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. Even like eye masks can just black yeah. everything out and you know, totally. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and sometimes, it, you know, it, they seem like such simple things, but when you stack them all together, if there's just one piece that was missing, it can make a huge mm-hmm. difference over time. Mm-hmm. It really can. Yeah, and I and I come back to that idea of the kid, right? Like, if your two- or three-year-old doesn't have their nap or doesn't get a good sleep, it's so obvious. They can't emotionally regulate. Yeah. They're tired and they're cranky and they're whiny, and we will write it off. We'll say, like, oh, you didn't get his nap today, or kind of thing. Like for some reason, as adults, we think we've just outgrown that. It's just showing up in a different way. So yeah, we're not having the like behavioral outburst, but we're experiencing the anxiety. Right, but we're still feeling irritable and upset and mm-hmm. impatient and pissed off, mm-hmm. and everybody's stupid. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's like a really good segue into the mental health implications because, um, yeah. So what is the research showing? So yeah, definitely this this yeah. between the toddler having the tantrum and not getting its nap, and then how you know our own irritability or emotional dysregulation manifests. And some people it can be a full on diagnosis and other mm-hmm. people it's just feeling impatient with your family. kind mm-hmm. of. You know. Yeah. So I think it, it goes hand in hand. Like you said, like we can feel anxious about not sleeping and then we can have trouble sleeping because we're feeling anxious. Um, and then we know kind of, if you aren't getting that seven hours of consolidated sleep, you're just going to be at higher risk for experiencing mood disturbances let's use that as like an umbrella term mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah right well, what happens in the brain like what does the research i know a ton of yeah, stuff but... that's a good question i think a lot of it has to do with cortisol to be honest i think so much of it is like like i said earlier when you wake up with less than seven hours of sleep you know like your body is waking up in that physiological state of stress and it, some people are going to be more sensitive that to that than others mm-hmm. right we can also then find ourselves in like these cycles of say getting up super early because we're trying to do all the things, feeling tired because we haven't had enough sleep, over caffeinating, not maybe paying attention to where we are in, as females in our menstrual cycle because we're going to experience sleep differently over the course of, of the month and as we age. Um, so that was actually going to be one of my other things I was going to say is like yeah. with respect to the sleep maintenance insomnia for women who are approaching perimenopause and in menopause, that's a huge concern and complaint. We'll see like up to 60% of women complain of sleep disruption through, through those stages. And um, this is especially important if we're looking at like hot flashes, Mm. right? And so then where we can apply this to kind of like women in general is we're looking at hormones fluctuating. So whether that's in menopause, perimenopause, or even premenstrually, Mm when your estrogen is dropping for a lot of women that will cause 
insomnia. And then if we look at, again, like all the cycles that we're talking about, over caffeinating, and then you're coming home at the end of the day and having a glass of wine, you know, the alcohol has its depressant effects. And so we'll ultimately just see, like, if you're not getting enough sleep, we'll see an increase in inflammation. Yeah. And bigger picture, like Alzheimer's disease has been correlated with short sleepers and, and some of the more famous people, like, um, I think, um, I'm so not good with names. There's two really well-known people who had, oh, one was a U.S. Ronald president. Reagan. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say Ronald Kennedy. That's how good I am at names. Um, and then there, there's a woman and I want to say her name is Margaret Thatcher. Oh, is it Margaret Thatcher? Oh, yeah. That's right. Where they were, they were both like had a bravado around not sleeping. Totally. And then both had both of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we obviously can't say from those two cases alone that like lack of sleep causes Alzheimer's. But now we're getting much more confident with the additional research that's coming out around how that lack of sleep causes increased inflammation. Part of what happens in a in a brain to go back to that is like we have this whole network called the glymphatic system. So most of our, us are familiar with the lymphatic system. This glymphatic system is particularly, sorry, is located in our brain and nervous system. And so it basically comes alive to do its job when we sleep. Mm. And so what happens is when we go to sleep, we actually like our cells can kind of like decrease in size. And then we have this huge influx of fluid and, and these microglia cells that come in are like garbage pick up picker uppers <laughs> for lack of a better term. And they'll take out all the crap. Like think about how metabolically active your brain is during the day with all of the thoughts that we think about, most of which are repetitive. <laughs> um, it, it generates a lot of oxidative stress and byproducts that we need to get rid of. And that can only happen when we are sleeping. And so that's why I say when like, when we're not sleeping, we're not healing. That, like when I heard about that for the first time, it it sold me completely on the impact of sleep and mental health. Because just this visual of your brain kind of shrinking a bit while you're sleeping and then getting mm. like a, a power wash. A wash. <laughs> you're just washing out your brain. And if you don't get that, all that crap is left yeah. over. And I don't think that you can compensate for that. Like if you had right. you know, if you missed out on a few nights of that brainwash, I don't know if the next night's I'm not sure actually, maybe you know. Yeah. No, I, that's, it's true. We can't, um, we can, we can make up for things like REM sleep. Like I was talking about the differences or non-REM if you're, if you've been deprived, selectively deprived of one. Um, but long-term it, it's really hard to catch up on, mm-hmm. on sleep in that way. You know, this idea of like sleep debt and, and that you can yeah. up in some respects, but not fully. Not others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that brainwash thing is like <laughs> every time. Like, I did not get eight hours last night, full disclosure, or even seven. And I'm like, I didn't get my brainwash. <laughs> I know. And so, like, where I would encourage people to to look is using a sleep tracker. So I have no affiliation, but I use Sleep Cycle Smart Alarm. Mm-hmm. It's an app. It's on my phone. So I just I put my phone on airplane mode when I go into my bedroom. It's the one rule. If you do have your phone in your bedroom, unless you're on call. Um, it goes on airplane mode and then you start it when you go to sleep. It uses the microphone to pick up on your breathing and movement and you can tag your daily habits to then understand how they impact your sleep, good or bad. So you can start putting in, okay, I had a glass of wine. I worked out. I had a stressful day. I worked in the evening. I did a yoga class. So then over time you can start understanding, 
oh, look at that. The days that I have a glass of wine in the evening, I actually don't sleep that much. And where I find it really insightful is we, I knew this, like we overestimate the amount of sleep that we get. But I was like, oh, I don't, I know how much sleep I get. It's fascinating because we spend eight hours in bed, but the actual time that we're asleep is often much less than that. And so when we talk about getting seven or more hours, for me, it's really helpful for me to reflect back on that. And just, it brings me back to prioritizing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can be really eye-opening. I had an oar ring for mm-hmm. a while until I lost it surfing. It's at the bottom of Lake Erie. Oh, but, no. yeah. but it was really eye-opening to see, I really, especially because it would somehow figure out how much deep sleep and REM sleep you were yes. getting. Yeah. And um, it was, there was always some deficiency in one area, but it would always toggle. So what you're saying actually did play out with your ring. Right. One night I'd get REM and I'd be deficient and deep. And then the next night kind of would flip. But yeah, yeah, it was always, it was kind of like, oh man. Uh, And then it would recommend what bedtime you should have. And it's like, according to the data, you should be in bed now at 7 p.m. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. I know I've had the, I have a picture of the aura ring on my vision board. (laughs) Um, I recently bought a weighted blanket because I was debating between the two. I was like, should I get an aura ring or a weighted blanket? And I opted to get the weighted blanket because I'm like, I want to get something that's going to help me sleep versus tell me more because sometimes I just get excited about toys. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's actually, yeah. You're like, I'd rather just take action. Yes. That's that's what I was feeling. Yeah. That's what I was feeling. Yeah, that's a cool. I mean, it's a cool toy, but I think when you have a, you can just like the idea that you can download a sleep tracker on your phone is really helpful because it's yeah. similar info. I mean, Oring will track your movements probably a little bit more accurately, but yeah. based on your hand motion, you know, so if your yeah. hand is, is immobile, but your body's moving or you're awake. Yeah. yeah. I think um, the Aura specifically tracks heart rate variability. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And it does. Because yeah. over, over. it can pick up your pulse in your finger. Super yeah, it does. Cool. Yeah, yeah, it is really cool. It's a cool toy. So I would recommend, yeah, if you're looking for a, okay. a wearable, it was a fun one. <laughs> yeah, just make sure it fits properly. Because yes, that's so true. Get blown off your finger. Yeah. Um, let's talk about PTSD because you mentioned that. And I think that's hmm. an interesting thing. We don't, we haven't really talked about, we, we've gone into trauma um, in this podcast, but, you know, how sleep affects PTSD or how... Yeah. It affects our sleep is really sure. Yeah. yeah. So by no means am I an expert, but, I, and I would like really encourage people to check out Matthew Walker's book. Cause I think he has a whole chapter on it, but it's kind of that classic presentation, right? With people with PTSD, they um, experience these recurrent, recurrent dreams that tend to wake them up. And then, so they're almost spending like quite a large amount of time in REM sleep and often unable to access that full emotional restorative brainwashing clearing out um, of the non-REM and so I think that it's just a really important part to recognize because part of how they're trying to um, treat PTSD and and design a medication is to really see if we can help people access more of that non-REM sleep. Mm, Yeah. That's really interesting because I, I was actually reading a study about depression and when they deprive people of REM sleep, mm-hmm. there was a positive effect. I'm not exactly sure why that. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I just heard of that too. I think he mentioned that on the podcast mm-hmm. and that reminds me to go look at it. Um, where, where I was going to segue there is like on the topic of sleep medication. Yeah. yeah. So there is no medication that, can naturally induce sleep architecture. 
And so when we are prescribed sleeping medications or sleeping pills are actually just hypnotics. They're sedative medications that just actually help us forget how bad we've slept um, and sedate us. They don't actually take us through this full sleep cycle and architecture that we're talking about. So um, I think that's really important for people to recognize and understand. Do we sometimes need to use them? Absolutely. Sometimes you need to be sedated. Um, but all other times, like the, the medication literally works by causing amnesia, short-term memory disturbances, and you actually just forget how, how bad you've slept the night before. And when you look at some of the long-term consequences of them, there's a significant increased risk of, um, I think, infection, cancer, all-cause mortality, mm-hmm. and there's something else that I'm, I'm blanking on. But the side effects are not pretty, and you don't actually have to be using them every night. It's yeah. like you experience a significant increased risk even at like one or two tablets a, a month. So that's part of like my goal too, is to say like, okay, let's understand that sometimes these medications are needed for a short term. Let's work with then building out these sleep routines and schedules and implementation so that you can start taking that back and getting the full benefit of natural sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. Like sometimes sedation, especially if there's such a negative association with the bed and, and being, yeah. but yeah. And I think there was a study a few years ago that was like 18 um, doses of like a benzodiazepine. That's what it was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was, yeah, all cause mortality, which means dying from anything, mm-hmm. like accidents or cancer. Mm-hmm. That went up like 300% or something. It was really, yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. so the point where many doctors now will not prescribe them at all because yeah. that's the guideline recommendation, which opens up a huge area for your practice in naturopathic medicine because it's like, I think in the guidelines, yeah. Some doctors were being told to refer to naturopathic mm-hmm. doctors or people who were going to do more mm-hmm. like CBTI and that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. 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 So I'm, I'm building that out because there's such a demand for it that I'm, I am launching a program in October. I'm putting it out there. I'm going to stay accountable to my word. Um, that helps people walk through these elements, right? Because it's so important, I think, to understand how we can pull all of these pieces together and like who who talks about eating during the day to sleep at night like when it's such an important piece and so so often like I've had patients who come to me for sleep and they want a a supplement to replace their sleeping medication we talk about all these other things and like oh I didn't oh yeah like all of these things and so the really neat thing about CBTI is that if we take you through a six to eight week program you are, well, what's been reported. So like from patients who, who go through a 68 week program, they'll report sleep improvement and resolution of their insomnia in the majority of cases, two years later. Whoa. That is so cool yeah. because we're teaching people what to do and they're able to maintain it themselves. Yeah. And so I, I don't do CBTI, but I, I infuse the elements of it because I think, um, it's lifestyle medicine and then combined with what we do as naturopaths, it's like the perfect approach. Right. That's amazing. Wow. Up to two years later. So yeah. So these things stay. That's like, yeah. And we see, which, which is really cool. Um, like talking about menopause, for example, when we're saying like if if one's having hot flashes and that's what's waking her up and leaving her, um, unable to sleep at night, even if we teach her CBTI principles, regardless of the reason that you're waking up at night, if you're taught how to go back to sleep, 
Mm. It is a behavioral change that can have long lasting effects. So even if we're not treating you for the hot flashes, but we're treating you for the behavior piece, Mm. because regardless of the the cause of the wake up, like so many people are then going to start ruminating or Mm -hmm. right. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, this is just influencing the wake up, like having a cat that jumps. Yeah, out. exactly. Having a partner that snores, hearing your neighbor go to work and like whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hearing yeah. street traffic or yeah. whatever. But it's how we respond to that that can make a difference and, yeah. and improve sleep. And that's, a, I think, a, a really important point too, this idea of a program versus, because I don't know about you, but I feel like <laughs> we can be blue in the face talking about sleep hygiene and turn up your electronics mm-hmm. and and sometimes I don't do that many times, actually, mm-hmm. all my own advice, but all of that stuff. And then, you know, that information's out there. I think most people kind of know about it, but the idea of putting someone totally. through the strategy and, yeah. and working on it is very different, right? Because, um, and these outcomes are, are proving that, that it, it, you know, even if people probably knew they shouldn't be on their phones, right? Before mm-hmm. that, the idea of going through this six to eight week program having mm-hmm. these permanent changes. So something is happening in the program and in the strategy that's, mm-hmm. that's shifting something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So cool. I'm excited. Yeah. That's so congrats. That's awesome. Yeah. Can you speak a little bit about CBTI, like a little bit about those interventions? I mean, you don't have to give yeah. it up. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so um, it's basically a lot of what we talked about in terms of like um, figuring out your sleep schedule. So understanding your body clock, but then also understanding like how that fits within the reality of your responsibility. So yeah, you might be a night owl, but like if you still have to get up in the morning to get to your job, we've got to work on that. Um, so picking your ideal sleep schedule, understanding how your habits are impacting you, like during the day or impacting your sleep at night. So we look at like nutrition, caffeine, um, substances like alcohol and, and stuff like that. Movement is such a key piece as well. Um, talking about incorporating that wind down routine and then the bedtime and room elements of like how to create that external environment are really important too. And then there's kind of some things around like, what do you do if you feel like napping in the afternoon? Um, how do you compensate for a jet lag or social jet lag over the weekend when you're staying up later and sleeping in and things like that? So those are kind of like the core elements of, of the CBTI piece. It's like really understanding your behaviors as it relates to sleep during the day and at night and modifying them bit by bit. In some cases, we have to do sleep restriction. So it seems counterintuitive, but if you're spending a lot of time in bed, so if you calculate your sleep efficient like quotient, if you're spending um, less than 80% of the time that you're in bed asleep, so let's say you're spending eight hours in bed, but you're only asleep for four, that's 50%. Um, we need to drop that time that you spend down in, in bed to like five or six hours. Mm-hmm. And then you're just building that confidence. So like you start figuring all those things out too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that you get the immediate sleep. Yeah. So you get the sleep, it's consolidated and then you build the confidence and now you have like an 80 to 90% coefficient um, or quotient. And then you can say like, okay, now I can go to bed a little bit earlier and work it out from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, yeah. So that you, and also that you generate enough sleep pressure. So that yes. You really fall asleep. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And that can be, yeah, that's, that's a, and that's a really important process to, to work with someone on, I think, you know, in, a, in the mm-hmm. context of a program, cause it can be tricky to, stay on that I imagine yeah. yeah 
Well, that's so cool. Yeah, I, I, you know, I read this. Th- so the Hamilton Depression Rating Scale, um, so we used in studies to measure like anti, like any sort of antidepressant intervention, whether that be medication or lifestyle intervention or anything like that. Um, so I think it's a 52-point scale, and an antidepressant will drop you, it's anywhere from two to three points on that scale out of 52 possible points, but just improving sleep. So the totality of the sleep questions will will improve your sleep by six points. And that's That's just if only sleep improves and doesn't have the um, sort of the side effect of improving mood as well. So it was sort of like, oh, okay, so all I need to do is just work on my sleep. And it's like three times as effective as the leading antidepressant medication, Mm -hmm. you know, if it doesn't impact my mood as well. Yeah. It's yeah. powerful. I know. It's and it's free. free. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it is. And it's accessible to everyone. Yeah, so cool. yeah, 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 exactly. Like it, with your extra hour a day. Okay, hopefully everyone's convinced now that they're mm-hmm. going to spend it on sleep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, this is great. Like, any last uh, thoughts or any last things you want to touch on or any take-home messages? I think we've covered most of it, but really I just want to like reemphasize the fact that sleep is the foundation of health. And I think we need to reclaim it and really give permission to ourselves to, to lean into that and to, and to rest and to recognize the importance. It doesn't mean that we're lazy or neglecting other aspects. It can actually be the biggest productivity, mood enhancing, libido enhancing, anti-aging medicine that there is. So yeah, yeah, that's and that's another thing too is the aesthetic thing. Like mm-hmm. people rate people who yes. are more attractive. Yeah. You can save a lot on face cream. And and then this other idea of, you know, for we're we're not able to procreate or eat or defend against predators while we're asleep, and yet our body forces us or requires us to do this every single night. So it must right. be you know totally. Yeah. yeah. If there's a drive for this thing that we're really not benefiting from in any obvious way, you know, and I mean, now we know the the benefits in a more physiological level, but you know, mm-hmm. so, mm-hmm. so sleep everyone. This is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and Leah, where can we find you? So we'll have links in the show notes, but yeah, thanks. So I'm most active on Instagram. I'm at Dr. Leah Saunders ND and um, people can connect with me there. And I've got lots of resources and links through my profile. Okay, awesome. Yeah, so they can get the um, this, the uh, document that you have, the sleep tips, and then learn about your program yeah. as it's coming out. Yeah, yeah. I'll be doing a webinar, I think, October 18th. Okay, awesome. So people can follow you and then get Yeah, and sign up for free. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. This was so great. Yes. And uh, yeah, and we haven't really touched on sleep, like I said, so this is really good. To yeah, do. I'm happy to connect. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Talia.